0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Daniel chapter 10. We're kind of on the home stretch of the book of Daniel. Daniel 10 is a prologue that launches us into the last vision that Daniel has 10, 11, and 12. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. I'm going to invite Stephanie to come, and she's going to do our scripture reading for us. And I will pray, and then we're going to get to work.
1: Stephanie? Good morning. <clears throat> This is the Lord's word from Daniel chapter 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come.
0: Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is given to us, and for our instruction. God, for correcting us and training us in righteousness. God, I ask and I pray now, even though your word is all good, uh, there are parts of your word that are just harder to understand. And so I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. God, for myself, I pray that you'd help me to teach with clarity. God, that we would see what it is in your word that you want to reveal to us. And God, would you give us all uh, hearts that are receptive to the truth of your word? And may our time be focused on Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You know, the book of Daniel is really interesting because you got this first half, that's all the stories that we're familiar with. The lion's den, the men in the fiery furnace. But then this second half goes into apocalyptic literature. And if you've been here with us, you remember me saying, you know, the word apocalypse means an unveiling, a peek behind the curtain." A, a, a window into a world that is happening all around us all the time, but that we are largely unaware of. And I was thinking about this this week. Um, I was thinking about it just uh, kind of in broad strokes of human history. So, so think about this. Really, for all of human history, literally every culture has had some sort of belief in the supernatural. I'm not exaggerating when I say that for all of recorded history, all cultures, all peoples at all times believed in gods and goddesses and spirits and ancestor spirits and I mean that's just normal. But you hit something called the Age of Enlightenment. And the Age of Enlightenment brought about things like rationalism and the age of science and the age of reason and and actually things that are really really good. How many of you are thankful for, I don't know, penicillin. Okay, I'm thankful for the age of medicine. I'm thankful for uh, the, the, the scientific advances that have come about as a result of the Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment also came with a couple of pieces of baggage. One of those pieces of baggage would be what we might call naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that the only things that exist are those things that we can see, smell, taste, touch. What did I forget? Here. That's naturalism. That's all there is. And this gets into, you know, like Isaac Newton, who, best we can tell, really loved Jesus, but, he, you know, he put together, you know, these systems of physics, and basically the idea is like, well, we can just figure everything out. Because all of science is just based on these rules and these principles, and we'll just figure everything out. I know quantum mechanics and quantum physics comes along later and kind of blows that all up, but, you know, this age of naturalism, and so many people rejected anything that had to do with the spiritual world or the supernatural. But there's another version of it that doesn't quite go that far. It's deism. Are you guys familiar with the word deism? The word deism, if you're not familiar with it, means there is a God, but he exists outside of the natural world, and it's like, he, it's like God created everything and he wound it up like a clock and then set it on the shelf and God is kind of distant and removed. He's not involved in what's happening here in the world of space and time. That's deism. And so you could still believe in a God. You could still believe in Jesus as a good moral teacher, but it's God's like out there and what we see and touch and smell and all of that is really what's real and that's what exists. Now, you get past the age of enlightenment. You get into the age of what I'm calling postmodernism. Again, quantum mechanics, philosophy. I mean, this is really broad strokes. I am really oversimplifying things. But you end up in an age like where we're at now where it's kind of both but neither, it's kind of both, but neither. We, we believe in science and rationalism and naturalism, but then also, uh, you know, I, like, I, have, I have a buddy who um, is an atheist, very, very, uh, you know, proud to call him that. I'm an atheist, but he believes in ghosts. And I was thinking about, like, I was thinking about all the stories that our culture produces, right? Like, think about Alice going through the looking glass into this other world. Think about Dorothy, and a tornado taking her to the land of oz think about a young luke skywalker being mentored by obi-wan kenobi you think you've taken your first step into a larger world or peter and susan and lucy and that jerk edmund and they go through the wardrobe and they they come into narnia and think about morpheus with the red pill and the blue pill like neo which one are you going to take and even think about think about well, you know, Lucas and Will and Mike and all them in the Upside Down, right? For you youths. And you're like, well, oh, okay, well, that's the stories we tell. Of course, there's this idea of there's another world or another dimension or another realm. But actually, this isn't just the stories. There's some thing where we can't shake this idea. And uh, Jacob, one of our, our ministry interns, he sent me an article from 2016 that was talking about secular Europe, Sweden in particular. I mean, this is this is... Uh, An atheist's mecca, if you know anything about the sociology that's going on there, like, Europe is just more and more and more secular. 21% profess a belief in God. Only 21%. And that number's been on the decline for years. And yet, the number that's rising is 33% believe in astrology and lucky charms, and, that number, and I don't mean the cereal, like everybody believes in that. You can just go to the grocery store. I mean like talismans and, and rabbit's feet and all that kind of stuff. And you kick over to Iceland. There was a statistic from this article that said greater than 50% believe in telepathy, mental telepathy, and huldofolk. Now, I didn't know what that word meant, and so I had to keep reading the article. That means hidden folk, hidden creatures like elves and trolls. So more people in Iceland believe in trolls. And again, I'm not talking the Justin Timberlake movie. I'm talking, I'm talking like trolls, like creatures that live in caves. More people in Iceland profess to believing in trolls and believe in God. It's like we cannot escape this idea that there's something else going on, going on beyond just the natural world. Now, in every single chapter of Daniel, we have encountered... These types of ideas. Daniel chapter 1 might be the most, quote, normal chapter in the whole book, but we still meet magicians and enchanters and astrologers and Chaldeans. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and we have to have the dream interpreted. Daniel chapter 3, there's a fourth man in the fire who appears to look like one of the sons of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar said. Daniel chapter 4, there's another dream, and we meet these creatures called the Watchers, and the Watchers come from heaven to deliver a message of judgment, and they've got this decree. And Daniel chapter 5, a mysterious hand shows up on the wall, which actually, as I was thinking about it, to me, that's still the scariest one. Like, I would take the lion's den over the floating disembodied handwriting on the wall. That one, for me, freaks me out the most. Daniel chapter 6, we see Uh, the angels show up and actually stop the mouth of the lion, Daniel says. And in Daniel uh, chapter 7, there's the Son of Man, and there's spiritual beasts, and there's earthly kings. And in 8, we meet Gabriel, and he talks about the prince of the host and these stars. And last week in chapter 9, there's Gabriel again, and he's giving an interpretation. Like in every single chapter of Daniel, even the ones that are the, quote, more normal stories, we have been invited to look at the world in a little bit of a different way. And you and I, as 21st century Americans, have been handed a set of glasses, a set of naturalistic, rationalistic, enlightenment glasses that even for those of us who are Bible-believing Christians, we would claim to be theists, not deists, God is involved, we still can't help but look at the Bible and the world more naturalistically than we ought to. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? And so I want to make one big point today from Daniel 10, and it's this. Though we are often unaware, we are in constant interaction with the spiritual world. We're largely unaware and ignorant of it, but we exist, you know. Sorry, that great American theologian Madonna. We are not just living in a material world, okay? And you should not just be material girls and boys, all right. That was bad. I'll fix that for later. So, so what I want to do? Yeah, I was bad. <laughs> uh, I want to walk through Daniel chapter ten, and I want to let Daniel ten. Daniel ten is a prologue chapter. Um, there's not a lot of movement forward in the story, but there's a lot of questions that are raised by Daniel ten. We're going to get into more content in chapters 11 and 12. All three of these chapters together are the final vision. But I want to let Daniel 10 serve to kind of springboard us up into what I'm going to call a systematic theology overview of the biblical perspective on this spiritual world. So let's go through Daniel 10. We're going to zoom out and do some theology, and then we're going to come back and get personal with what God wants us to do with that. Is that okay? Daniel chapter 10, if you got your Bibles... Follow along with me. Verse one, in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Couple things going on here. Third year Cyrus, king of Persia. The Jewish people were taken into exile by Babylon. Persia then conquers Babylon. And Cyrus says, y'all can go home. Why is Daniel called Belteshazzar here? and we haven't heard that name since chapter 5. It's been five chapters. Why is it Daniel, who is also named Belteshazzar? He didn't go back home. He's still in the land of Babylon. And the word was true, and it was great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the visions. There's a little introduction. This word comes to Daniel. Warning. Rough waters ahead. Now, Daniel, first person, I, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Three weeks, 21 days. I was mourning. I, I don't know for certain, but I, I, my guess is, my best guess is, he is mourning that he did not go home to Jerusalem. Whether he is too old to make the trip at this point, or whether he was not given permission by Cyrus or Darius or whoever was ruling over him at that time, don't know. But he is weeping for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man, pause, a man. Just, that's what the text says, a man. Clothed in linen. Uh, that would be like, you know, like ZZ Top, a sharp-dressed man, okay? Linen is like a little bit better, a cut, a cut above just your normal everyday garments, the priests would wear linen when they were ministering in the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a man, a sharp-dressed man, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. I don't know how Daniel can tell where the gold is from, but that's, that's legit. And then the description starts to turn a little bit, okay? It's a man, but his body was like a barrel. Um, it's like a, like a crystal, like a mineral. Uh... <laughs> I've never used mineralistic language to describe the body of anyone I've ever talked to. So we're already going into some new territory here. His face, like the appearance of lightning, his eyes, like flaming torches, his arms and legs, like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. Now, I know you've never described anyone, a, a man, dressed in linen that way. Oh, do you know uh, do you know Jerry? Oh,
1: oh.
0: Is he the one with the arms and legs like polished bronze? Yeah, that's the guy. Like you just, something more is happening here. This isn't just a man. There's, there, there's all these clues for us to realize that though it appears like a man, there's something more going on. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. Kind of reminds me of when God converted Saul, uh, the Apostle Paul, like he saw the vision. Other people knew something was going on and they were stressed out by it, but they didn't actually see it. Only Daniel sees it. So I was left alone and I saw this great vision. The great vision that's going to be chapters 11 and 12. My... My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. There are things in the Bible like that that just delight me. Like Daniel, like, well, my my normal, beautiful self uh, was fearfully changed, and I, I retained no strength. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He passed out. He fainted. and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. We' so starting to rise. There's comfort here. And he said to me, "Oh Daniel, man greatly loved. understand the words that I speak to you, and, and, and stand upright, for I've been sent to you." And when he spoke this word to me, I stopped trembling. you hear the comfort, the encouragement, the grace there? A hand of comfort, a word of comfort. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from that first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, the first day you started fasting and praying, that first day, your words have been heard. Friends, isn't it encouraging to know that God hears your prayers? Your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words, and and." Well, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, three weeks. That's how long Daniel's been fasting and praying. This whole time, I I was sent to you, but I haven't gotten here yet because I've been fighting the prince of the kingdom of Persia. But Michael, one of the chief princes, when you get into the New Testament Greek, it's an archangelos, came to help me For I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And when he spoke to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and and was mute. I couldn't even speak. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man, is this the same guy? Is this another guy? I'm not entirely sure, but it just, again, looks like a man the appearance of the likeness of man, just a dude, touched my lips and then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, "O Lord, by reason of this vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? I, I can't even speak with you. I've got no breath left in me. There's no strength left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, will you say it with me? Greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, okay, all right, T- tell me what's going on. Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. (laughs) And he said, well, do you know why I've come to you? But I I have to return. I have to go back and fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, listen, the prince of Greece is also going to come. But I got to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. and, And there's no one who contends by myself. There's no one who fights along with me except for Michael, your prince. Is anyone left with the feeling like maybe you missed something? (laughs) Thank you. You read this passage, you read this chapter, it's like there's a man who's more than a man, was delayed for three weeks because he was fighting a Persian prince. Like the angel fighting a prince and then... He has to go back. He's got to fight the prince of Persia and Greece. And there's this other prince named Michael, who's your prince and is the chief prince. And he's the only one who's fighting with me and helping me. And I'm like, what is happening here? I feel like I maybe missed something. When we talk about angels and supernatural beings, one of the things, at least for me, is I know that I have been prone to think of supernatural beings more in the category of like dogs okay? Uh, we see pictures and artwork of, of angels, and they're like, you know, nice, and they're, you know, they're you know, the horrible ones, like the fat babies that kind of float around, and you know, Cupid, and like angels. Like there's good ones, like dogs. Like there's good ones, and they can help you, and you can pet them, and they're there for you, and they might even alert you to danger, or protect you. That's great. And then there's bad ones. They might bite you, and they might be grouchy, and so they might, you know, pee in your living room or whatever. Like you stay away from those ones and these ones are nice ones and these ones are bad ones and they're just kind of, like they're kind of down here. But what we're seeing here is when Daniel has an encounter with supernatural beings, he is drained of his strength. He falls to the ground. He faints. He can't speak. He is completely overwhelmed. I think we might not be thinking biblically about supernatural beings if we think of them in the category like I described, like dogs. So here's what I want to do. When I say, does anyone feel like we missed something? We have missed something. Because of the glasses that we've been handed, the naturalistic, humanistic glasses that we've been handed, we miss what the Bible is saying about supernatural beings. And so I want to offer you five points that will help us to understand what is going on here in the Bible that will actually help us to understand what is truly going on in the world. Five points, and then four instructions. It's nine points if you're tracking with me. We'll go quickly. Number one there are many supernatural beings. There are many supernatural beings. Different types, different terms. In fact, I got a slide here. We'll put this up. Look at all these different words that are used for supernatural beings. Some of these are used in Daniel, like we've seen watchers, and we've seen stars, and we've seen uh, mighty ones, or princes, or men. Some of these you find in in Revelation, like living creatures, uh, you know, seraphim and cherubim and and the heavenly host. And the one though at the top that you might be particularly interested in is this idea of Elohim. That's the Hebrew word. And it's just translated sometimes as, it's either translated as God or gods. The word Elohim is this really flexible word that basically means a spiritual being that doesn't have a body. So it can refer to the one true God, It can refer to all these other supernatural beings. And even in some places in the Bible, Elohim is used to refer to the departed spirits of humans who have died, like the prophet Samuel. So that brings some impact when you look at verses like Exodus 23, 20 verse three, the 10 commandments, you shall have no other Elohim before me. Now again, Think about that verse. Why would that be the first commandment? Why would God say that to this people, Israel? Did it, did Israel ever did Israel ever demonstrate a proclivity to worship other gods? Nonstop, constantly, all the time. Yes. You're like, okay, well, we've heard that before. It's the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, what about Exodus fifteen eleven? Who is like you, O Lord, among the Elohim? who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Now, if you take off your glasses, your 21st century, not only Western American, but Judeo-Christian inheritors of good doctrine, that verse sounds scarily like polytheism, does it not? How many gods are there? Or, oh my goodness, King David, Psalm 138. At one point I had this psalm memorized. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods... I sing your praise. Is anybody feeling a little bit stressed out right now? Good. (laughs) My email address uh, afterwards, if you have questions. Yeah, Yeah, it's Sam at soundcitybibleschurch.com. How about the prophet Jeremiah, who we've been interacting with? Because he's prophesying around the same time as Daniel. Jeremiah says, that, that God's bringing judgment because these people have offered offerings, roof offerings to the host of heaven and drink offerings to other gods. Even going all the way forward to the New Testament, First Corinthians, the apostle Paul says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and he says this, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So friends, the theology is right. There is only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the utterly unique uncreated creator. There is only one true God revealed by the name of Yahweh to the people of Israel. But we also need to remember the context from which the Bible comes. All of the cultures are polytheistic. All of the cultures believed in other gods. And the people of Israel are saying, yeah, there are a lot of spirits. There's a lot of so-called gods. But for us, there is only one. And the commandment... In Exodus, the first commandment of the 10 words, the 10 commandments is, you will worship Yahweh alone. Now, continuing our journey down this rabbit hole, point number two is this, God rules through a divine counsel. There are, it's really hard to know with specificity, you, we get into speculation really quickly, but there is some sort of hierarchy to these spiritual beings. That's why there's terms like archangel and then just angel. So an angel is just a messenger. These seem to be kind of the lowest level. They they go and they communicate. Um, The highest would be these archangels, these chief angels, chief princes. Somewhere in the middle is guardian angel. And you have, I guarantee it, a wrong picture of what guardian angels are. Because when the Bible talks about guardian angels, it's usually talking about the cherubim and they are like flaming and they're covered with eyes and have multiple heads and there's a sword that's protecting Eden and the presence of God from unholy and unrighteous things getting in. Guardian angels are more about guarding the throne room of God from evil. It's like the, it's like, uh, well, I have a bad analogy, I'll skip it because I've already used up my one for the day. But look at what... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, look at what look at what Psalm 82 says. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And then God issues a correction to these rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Skipping down to verse 6, I said you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. God is speaking to these Angelic beings, nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And then there's a prayer at the end. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Remember back in Daniel chapter 7 when it says the Ancient of Days came and there was a lot of thrones placed? That's what it's talking about. This divine Council of supernatural beings that God exercises his rulership and his 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 lordship of the earth through it's I'm not making this up it's right there in the Bible it's why there's all these words like authorities and rulers and princes and principalities that's why those words are used all over the place it's a it's a ruling type of being number three some of these gods rebelled against the most high and the 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 clearest place I can show it to you is in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel's a prophet who is also around the exact same time of Daniel and Jeremiah, all around this time of the exile. And Ezekiel starts issuing a, a word of judgment against the Prince of Tyre. Tyre's a nation that had, had been uh, you know, an enemy of Israel's. and so there's this pronouncement of judgment. He says this, say to the Prince of Tyre, this is what God says, because your heart is proud and you've said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So time out, we're like, okay. We are bringing judgment to the prince of Tyre, a man who thinks he's a God. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. But then you keep reading on and the language starts to get weird. That's the technical scholarly term for it. Verse 12. You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your your covering and all these different stones, sapphire, emerald, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Time out! The prince of Tyre was in Eden and was an anointed guardian cherub. Like, again, you're seeing this language where it's like it starts in one place, but pretty quickly the curtain opens up and you realize that Ezekiel is speaking not of an earthly king, but of a supernatural being who has rebelled against the Most High God— And is exercising lordship and rulership over this nation of Tyre somehow in a way that is opposed to the way that God wants things to be run. Which brings in my fourth point the nations are under the rule of rebel gods. Deuteronomy 32. There's praising of God. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God's perfect. They, now who's the they? They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Looking at verse eight, when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. Quick question, where in the Bible is it that God divided mankind? Where did he scatter mankind? Babel, Babel, Babylon. Oh, huh, okay. What did the people of Babel do at the Tower of Babel? It's, Let's build a, a, a tower. We will be like gods, they said. And God said, oh, you want to be like gods? You want to you worship other gods? Whew. Scattered. Scattered. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. I, I know that this is, I know somebody in this room is really stressed out right now. I'm trying to show you what's in the Bible and might have been kind of hiding in plain sight all this time because we don't read the Bible with biblical eyes. What he's saying is when God divided up mankind, he says, here, you people, you go to this one. You want to worship these false gods? Here, go have at it. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. You go, you want to you worship other gods? Have at it. I'm choosing one particular people. I mean, this, again, Deuteronomy 4 Deuteronomy 4, when you look up in the sky and you see the sun, moon, the stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Remember that the Lord rescued you, O Israel, from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today, which leads me to my fifth point, which is Israel— is God's plan to redeem the nations. Genesis chapter 11, Yahweh scatters the people and Deuteronomy tells us that he placed them under the rulership of these other gods. You turn the page, Genesis chapter 12, and there was a man named Abram. And God called him and said, Abram, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna use you to bring blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth. There's a scholar named Michael Heiser who explains it beautifully. He says, Yahweh disinherited the nations and in the very next chapter of Genesis, he calls Abram. Again, this is not accidental. Yahweh would take a man from the heart of the rebellion. Abram is from Mesopotamia. He's from the region of Babel. And he calls him and he says, I'll make you a new nation, Israel. But in his covenant with Abram, God said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abram, through his descendants. The covenant language reveals that it was God's intention, right on the heels of his decision to punish the nations, that the Israelites would serve as a conduit for their return to the true God. This is one of the reasons that Israel is later called a kingdom of priests. Israel would be in covenant with the God of gods and the Lord of lords and those disinherited would be in spiritual bondage to the corrupt sons of God. But Israel would be a conduit, a mediator. Yahweh would leave a spiritual breadcrumb trail back to himself, and that path would wind through Israel and ultimately Israel's Messiah. That provides some perspective to prophecies like Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, Isaiah prophesies, a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Zion and Jacob, who's the Redeemer coming to? Israel, his people, He's coming to Israel. He's coming to the descendants of Abraham, like he promised. But then you continue on into chapter 60. For behold, it says, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness covers the people, but the Lord will arise upon you, Israel. His glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So God has had a plan in place since the foundation of the world, that though the nations would turn aside, though they would worship gods that are not truly gods, though they would rebel and run from him, he would bring redemption to all the nations of the earth through his promised redeemer. How many here today are believers in Israel's Messiah, but you're not Jewish by ethnicity? Raise your hand. Praise God for this promise then. This is a room full of people who are validation of this promise. But see, God's plan, now this, I love this. I love this. Because God's plan, you know, as we've read in Daniel, like things are a little bit opaque and not fully clear. And you read the Old Testament, like what is God doing? And how is this all going to go? Did you know that God did that on purpose? 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, hey, we're, we're spreading this message, this wisdom But it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, you start to hear phrases like that a little bit differently, who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then here it is. Get this. None of the rulers of this age understood it. None of these gods of the nations, none of these spiritual forces understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God is going to redeem all of the nations, all the peoples on the earth, by defeating the forces of darkness, by hiding his plan in plain sight. I think that's fantastic. I really like that passage because it shows the intentionality that God had and it shows like this, like this cosmic battle that's taking place behind the scenes for our very salvation. And when Jesus shows up, he, he is put to death, he is crucified, which the forces of evil think is their greatest moment of triumph when in fact it is the very means that God uses to not only purchase our forgiveness and our salvation, but to defeat the forces of evil. Colossians chapter two, the apostle Paul tells us this. We were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Are you thankful that God forgives your sins because of Jesus dying on the cross? That's one. Then it says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How many of you are thankful that Jesus paid it all? that he canceled our debt and our sins have been wiped away and our debt has been erased. But wait, there's more because it says in verse 15 that in that moment of the crucifixion of Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and humiliated them putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The cross looks like the greatest moment of defeat for God and his plan against these rebellious Elohim when in fact it is the moment that they are defeated and their power is broken. Praise God. I love this. This is so good. You can tell I get excited. You know I get excited about this kind of stuff because it means that the nations are no longer under the rule of these gods. And as Christ saves us, and as Christ redeems us, and as Christ forgives us of our sin, and he calls us into mission with him, we now go and we spread the message of the gospel to literally every nation on this planet. There are followers of Jesus in communist China right now. The church, we, we, we're hearing rumors of the, the, the followers of Jesus. It's, just, it's, it's literally just like blossoming like a flower in Iran there's pl- there are people all over the, all over the world who are meeting the the crucified and resurrected Redeemer that was promised by God, and it's all happening right under the nose of a bunch of powerless demon gods who can't do anything to stop it. And the war continues on. That's why Ephesians six, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Those people, those, even those rulers and kings and prime ministers and ayatollahs or whatever language we use, even they are not ultimately the enemy. There are spiritual realities. There are, there are cosmic powers over this present darkness and that this battle is against them. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, this is what is happening in Daniel. This is why... Michael, this, this chief angel, is going to battle against these spiritual rulers over Tyre and over Greece, and or, I'm sorry, over Persia and over Greece. And, and by the way, we're going to get into this some more next week, but Persia is better than Babylon. The people of Israel got to go home, but Persia is still wicked. <laughs> it's still at this time in redemptive history under the power of this rebellious God. And so Michael is contending against him. Jesus has now brought redemption and you and I are recruited into this battle the moment that we say yes to Jesus. Let me just tell you this. There is a battle happening whether you acknowledge it or not. And it is impossible to remain neutral. And in fact, to remain neutral is actually to participate in the plan of the forces of evil. If you have been redeemed by Jesus, if you have said yes to his gift of forgiveness and salvation and the canceling of your debt, then you are also drafted into the battle against the rulers of this age. And so I want to briefly share with you four ways to engage in the battle. Number one, we need to cultivate spiritual awareness. Like I said at the very beginning, it is far too easy Though we claim to be Bible believing Christians, it is far too easy to live as functional deists, to feel like God is out there, or whatever, but really the reality that I live in is just all up to me. And you might say, Aaron, the stuff that you're saying sounds weird, and let me just assure you, it is weird. But everything we believe is weird, according to the wisdom of this age. If you are a Christian, You believe that the all-powerful creator of the universe took on the form of a man and humbled himself that he died on a Roman cross to satisfy the debt that we owe against a holy God and that he rose bodily, physically on the third day and now ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's weird and that's just the first thing. Wait till we really get going. What we believe as Christians is weird according to the wisdom of this age. It is strange. But if we're to be engaged in the battle, we need to cultivate an awareness that we're in a spiritually connected world. Number two, I've already said this a little bit, but we need to recognize the real enemy. When you are frustrated, with somebody who is not a believer in Jesus, if they're bringing hatred or persecution or mockery or whatever is going on, we need to remember what Paul told us in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We need to remember that like places like 2 Timothy, it talks about people who have been captured by the enemy and are are doing his will or doing his bidding because they're captives, but Christ came to bring freedom for the captives. So we gotta recognize who the real enemy is that person who is spewing hatred your way, it's not them. They're not the ultimate enemy. Though they persecute you, though they look down on you, though they say mocking things about your faith, remember where the battle truly lies. Number three, you need to engage in the battle. I know it's engage in the battle by engaging in the battle, but here's what I mean. When I say the word, the, the phrase, spiritual warfare those of you who have maybe grown up in church or have experienced with church that feels weird to you, it instantly conjures up images of, you know, priests with holy water or a lot of like yelling or whatever spiritual warfare might look like. How about this? Men, husbands, fathers, when you grab your wife and your kids and you lay your hands on them and you pray over them at night, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. When you go to your neighbor who is elderly and often alone, and you sit with her for an hour and you communicate the grace of God, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. Foster parents, when you invite that child into your home, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. When you don't click on that website that you're tempted to click on, you're engaging in spiritual warfare. Engage. Don't be neutral. We're, we're called to participate in God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And it does not have to be some spooky, kooky thing It's called living the normal Christian life. When you want to skip your community group because you're tired, but you say, no, I need to go to serve those other people and to bring life and, and love into their hearts, you are engaging in spiritual warfare. And number four, remember Christ's victory. Christ has won the victory And one day he will return and we're living in this overlap of the ages, the the already not yet. Christ has already defeated the forces of darkness and we are now watching the dominoes fall. We're watching as the gospel goes to all nations of the earth and he's bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. He's redeeming uh, his people Israel. God is doing something in human history. So we got to remember that Christ is victorious. If you ever have one of those days where you just feel like I am up against Powers and forces that I have no ability to change. Ever had that feeling? I've had that feeling. In those moments, rejoice. Because you in your own strength do not have any ability to conquer those forces of darkness, those powers, those situations, those things that you look at in the world. But Christ does. Christ is victorious. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in the earth and above the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father. Father, would you forgive us for buying into the cultural lie that all that there is is the natural world. Would you help us to engage with you the spiritual world that you've invited us in to see? Thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for this look behind the curtain at what is really going on all the time. And God, would you help us now as we come to the table of the Lord to eat and to drink as we sing and and lift our voices. Would you help us to see even these activities as spiritual warfare, that we're nourished at the table and we're not nourished by running to false gods, that we're lifting our voices and praising the one true God who has defeated the forces of darkness. And Jesus, help us to remember that we'll enjoy you forevermore on the day of your return. So help us to be engaged in the battle until we see you face-to-face. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Thank you, Pastor Aaron. It's a great, great message that we hear today. As we transition to communion, uh, go ahead and pull out the bread and the juice, get those open, and our young students come in. If by chance you didn't get one on the way in, we have a few right down here and uh, right outside the doors. You can find them. I'm going to go ahead and read from Paul's uh, tells us in 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup. He took it after supper, saying, This this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Today I want to share with you guys, I want to pray from the valley of vision. So please Bow your head with me as we fight this battle together. God of all good, by thy spirit, enliven our faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While we gaze upon the emblems of our Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, and you guys, I can imagine Jesus saying these with joy, excitement, and love of a groom to his bride. It goes on. I gave my life to purchase yours. Presented myself an offering to expiate your sin. Shed my blood to blot out your guilt. Opened my side to make you clean. Endured your curses to set you free. I pour your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, Father, may we rightly grasp the breadth. And length of this design, draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that we do for ourselves gladly in faith, reverence and love, receive our Lord to be our life, our strength, our nourishment, joy and delight. Father, in the Supper, we remember His eternal love, His boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, the cross, and redemption. And receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may Thy indwelling Spirit invigorate our souls until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. So please take a moment now, follow Paul's exhortation to examine yourself, to pray, and then take of the bread and the juice We come to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.